Okay, so that's your class. You can, <laughs> we're done for the day. Uh, they covered it. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am and you're wondering why a 12-year-old is standing in front of you, my name is Hope and I teach 10th grade English at the high school here. So um, I've told Ryan that I've been trying, I've been wanting to write on this whiteboard since I first sat in this class and play with the markers. So what I would like to do today is actually um, merge what I do Monday through Friday with what we learn here. Um, I teach English, so all day long, all we do is look at books, and I teach close reading strategies, how to be a well-informed reader, how to analyze a text, to look at the forms and the structures and the literary devices, and all the things you may have glazed over or since slept. So what I wanted to do is bring you all back to the time when you were 16, and you would have walked into maybe Stillwater High School or wherever you're from. And I want to give you a pop quiz. So I gave you two outlines. This sheet has a list of literary terms, and it has definitions. Ashley is not allowed to help because she said she didn't need this sheet. So if you have a pen, or if you have a neighbor with a pen, I want you to try to draw the lines. Just match it up between these literary terms and their definitions. <laughs> no. Ashley cannot help. Do your best, people. Yeah. No. Yeah. Good. Okay, that's good. That's where we're. That's where we're gonna start. So just do your best. If you don't have any idea, just pick some random lines. Yes. Yes, yes, Chiasmus, he is the friend of Onesimus, yes, just take a few minutes, yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> hey. <laughs> what? What? Sorry. 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 You can draw little squiggles. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Oh, you have Macy. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Self will be ashamed. And Miss White. <laughs> All right, take just a few more seconds to wrap up your guesses. <laughs> And then we are going to grade this sucker. You will? I should have brought my gold stars. I keep gold stars in my desk. Sorry. I don't think I could do hugs as a reward to my 16-year-olds. Okay, we're going to go ahead and give you the answers. So, does anyone know what a chiasmus is? The third one, uh, in which grammatical constructions, concepts are repeated in reverse order. Yes, it is the third one. Thanks, Google. <laughs> it's fine, it's a lot of my students. Okay, I thought you would maybe at least recognize this one, a simile. Yeah, you got, okay, so a simile was the second one. Comparison of two things using like or as. Okay, the third one, synecdoche. Anyone have that one? The fourth one, a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole. Yes. A synecdoche, you, you, um, you replace the part for the whole. 
Oh, sure. Ashley, give us an example. So an example of chiasmus would be like the JFK. Ask not what you can do for you, but you can do for your country. That would be a chiasmus. Which we will talk about later. Show of hands of how many helped this weekend. Show of hands is Lend me your hand. that represents your whole body. So you're not just yeah. hands that went, but, you can, but that represents a whole body of people. So show of hands would be the synecdoche. Yes. Next up is juxtaposition. Anyone on this side of the room have a guess? Yes, two more ideas in reaction. Play side by side. So in my class, I say you have two opposite things and you smash them together in order to highlight their differences. Next is a metaphor, which is going to be replacing a word or a phrase used to refer to another to show or suggest that they are similar. The main difference between a simile and a metaphor is a simile uses like. So she is like a doll if she's cute, or she is a doll would be the metaphor if simile she's cute. Is a <laughs> wow, that was a metaphor in itself. That was that was deep. That was like meta. Yeah, similes are more explicit. Okay, next the rhetorical triangle. Anybody have a guess for this one? Yes, yes. The rhetorical triangle, which we're about to talk about, we're going to talk about all of these is all about the context <laughs> and a rhetorical question. The only one in here that mentioned a question, a figure of speech in the form of a question. You got at least one of them right. So keep these, do what you want with it. Um, I just wanted to refresh your memory or <laughs> make you feel good about yourselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into the text, but... I gave you these specific literary devices because they are what we are going to be talking about, looking at, analyzing in this text. One little speech spiel I give to my students when we first start the year is that it does not matter if you can identify a metaphor or a simile in the text if you can't tell me how it contributes to the overall meaning of the text. So I ask them, so what? Like, great job, you found that, so what? Or if they write, um, essays for me. Sometimes I'll just write, so what? And I'll circle a whole section. And I tell them I'm not trying to be rude. I just, so what is my shorthand for saying, yes, but how does this contribute to the overall meaning of the text? How does this point to highlight, give an insight to a greater meaning or significance to the characters or the themes? So that's one thing that we're going to be looking at here. All of these literary devices are working in conjunction to highlight a grand, bigger purpose. Um, any language arts is just the art of rhetoric and discourse. So we are going to be analyzing the way that uh, language empowers ideas, I suppose. So one of the first things I tell people to look for is a shift, which Ryan mentioned earlier. Um, I'm going to write this on my board because I wanted to write on it. So we have a shift. I also don't have beautiful English teacher handwriting. It's just not a thing. So, um, a shift in literature is any time that the focus or the style or the audience um, shifts, turns, and I always tell my students, look out for shifts, specifically in poetry. This is a book of poetry, so any time you have a change of direction, it's going to be something important. And I think that this video we watched did a really good job of highlighting the difference here. Um, one of the main shifts here that we have from sections 1 through 39 to sections 40 through 66 or 40 through 55 um, is a shift occurs within what we're going to talk about as the rhetorical <laughs> triangle that I promised I would draw for you. So rhetorical triangle, you have, well, I'll put this over here. You have speaker, audience, told you about my handwriting, and purpose. So in the case of Isaiah 40 through 66, 40 through 55 really, um, the speaker is going to be Isaiah, 
But technically, he's kind of speaking for God. He is being the mouthpiece of God. The audience here is a little tricky because Isaiah is writing this in uh, 720, but he is looking forward into a time of Babylonian exile. So the Israelites... Real in exile. This is going to be 530-ish. You can correct, I don't teach world history. Somewhere around there. Exile in Babylon. This is important because you're talking about a people who are in currently the middle of exile, who are in the middle of great suffering. And I think that's going to change the way that they receive the message. The message here, as we're going to see in just a second, is going to be comfort, end of exile, and an offer of hope. I was going to say, I think it's a conditional hope because he only, you can only have hope if you trust in the Lord, which is uh, something that you hit on last week, I believe. So, um, Brady volunteered to read before class. So, could you read uh, 1 through 11, um, 41 through 11? Loud and proud. Okay. Isaiah 41 through 11? Yes. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and it, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand <coughs> Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his uh, recompense. Okay. Uh, before him he will tend his flock like a shepherd he, he will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young thank you very much okay so in this new section um, Isaiah 40 1 through 11 I'm just going to be everywhere here organization is not my strong point so Isaiah 40 1 through 11 is going to function the same as Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 40 to 11 is the same for 40 through 55 as 6 is for 6 through 39. Isaiah 6, if you remember from a few weeks ago, is Isaiah's call. And this is God purifying, sending Isaiah out to be the herald of good news, to proclaim his name and his glory um, to, specifically, Israel. And now Israel gets the same commission. They are to be the herald of good news um, to the nations. So it functions the same way. The process they go through um, is a cycle of judgment, which leads to purification, which leads to salvation, which ultimately leads to God's glory. This one 
It's pretty important because I think a lot of times, um, especially I work with, I work with teenagers, and I've been in a lot of youth um, sermons and a lot of youth conferences, and I think we miss the mark a little bit because we end right here. Um, we end with Jesus died on the cross to save you, and uh, God has chosen you to save you. And I think we miss that ultimately it's not for you. That you, <laughs> Why do you think you're that significant? Um, that it's actually all about God's glory. Which, which is um, verse 5 of 40. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So you kind of have a purpose statement of that section. Um, another thing that shifts here, the difference between these two, the tone here in 6 is accusatory of this whole section. It's um, more of a negative, confrontational tone about their sin. There's some messages of hope glimmered throughout, but the main thing is uh, judgment here. But in here, it's a message of hope. starts off by saying, comfort, comfort my people. Tell them that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. So now these exiles in Babylon are going to be returning to them. That's their call. Um, but the problem here is that the people to whom um, God is comforting don't really trust him because they are in exile. So they have been stripped of their dignity and their homeland, um, probably their language, their culture, uh, any sort of rights or identity they have has been taken by the Babylonian Empire. And I think that any time that happens, um, you're going to have some sort of problem trusting God. Or I could just be imposing my own beliefs onto them because I just know that personally, any time something horrible goes wrong, like in the world or in my life, I shoot up these little red flags and I'm like, whoa, 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 God, wait a minute. You're in control, and you're sovereign, and you're good, so what gives? And it's a matter of trust. Um, so I could imagine, unless they just had crazy, awesome faith, and they're a lot more mature than I am, which is possible, um, they might have had a little bit of a problem or a struggle to trust the God that is sending them out because they are currently still in exile. It's not like he frees them and then gives them this call. He gives it to them while they're still in the middle of all their junk, which I kind of like. Um, but that's important to remember um, or at least demonstrate why the, the rhetorical triangle is so important because it reminds you of the context. So you're not just like, wow, this is such a cool little... This is a cool little passage, cute. It's not very cute. Um, I don't think that they would describe their situations. Um, I think that in an exilic community, it would have been easy to put their trust in uh, one of two things. One would be the rulers of the empires who are dominating the world and taking them out. And two, um, the gods of those empires. So. I think the rest of this passage is God debunking uh, the validity of those two things. So it would be um, an argument against man or the rulers and the idols and an argument for God. Um, I was talking to Ryan a little bit about this, and this whole section <coughs> kind of reminds me of a political campaign because it starts off in the negative, like describing how horrible the opponent is and why they're useless, and then it goes off telling you why God is good, and then it promises you what he can do. So I think maybe just because we're in election season, but I see it like when it starts off in black and white and like slow dramatic music, it's like these false idols can't do you any good, and then it's <laughs> God revealed. So that's kind of the context of this section. Um, the important thing to remember there is that it, that is juxtaposition, which is also a thing on your uh, quiz. So I'm going to write this in my mess. I'm 
how do you spell Yahweh? I got a text message in class that said I did it wrong. One of you. We're just going to spell it out. Yahweh. Versus idols. Yahweh versus man. So, juxtaposition, again, you take two opposite things or two dissimilar things and you shove them together in order to highlight their differences. And there are so many literary devices that happen in occurrence with that, but that's going to be rampant throughout this section. It's why would you um, follow or put your trust in this when you could have this? It's like that um, John Piper sermon we listened to uh, when he just goes off about the supremacy of Christ. And he says, why would you choose your sin when you have this? So, juxtaposition here. The first thing I want to point out that is juxtaposed is um, similes and metaphors. In chapter 40, um, chapter 40, verse 6, all flesh is grass and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word, the word of our God will stand forever. And in 4017, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Uh, so, these similes and metaphors function here to give you a very humble view, I think, of mankind. If you read through passages like this, or if you read through um, the passages at the end of Job, um, you just find yourself feeling smaller and smaller and smaller as you're reading them. Um, but it's the same concept here. You're saying flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The simile and juxtaposition working together. So this would be an example of what I would say, great job, students, but so what? It's not enough to just say, look, he uses the word like, and I memorized that when you use the word like, that's called a simile. I mean, who cares, really? But you have to get to the overall picture here that God is eternal and omniscient and people are insignificant and finite and their attempt to control or rule is futile. Yes, were you raising your hand? Also, one thing that we talked about is hyperbole. Yeah. And there's strong hyperbole here. Mm-hmm. Sounds as though God will willy-nilly just wipe things out if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. And yet throughout it, it shows how careful he is about that. Yeah. Lots of literary devices. Hyperbole is um, when you exaggerate something. So you say, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat an elephant. Or my students will say, oh, my gosh, I'm literally starving. Actually, if you are literally starving, We've got a really big problem, and you should probably not be in my class. You should be in the hospital, some sort of care. The next literary device that we're going to look at, wow, this board, is a synecdoche, which Ashley was describing earlier as when you, when you take a part for a whole. So if I say, hey, I need a hand with this, I'm not asking you, obviously, to chop off your hand. I'm asking you for help. I'm asking you for labor or some sort of assistance. Um, so we see this happening in 40.10. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. So this synecdoche, this image of the arm of the Lord coming with might and ruling, um, Isaiah, I think, is looking to the salvation of God. Again, these are people in exile who are in suffering, and they are looking to the arm and the might of their God in whom they can put their trust to lead them out of the suffering. Uh, this develops in 40.10. God is coming with his arm, ruling for him. And uh, even in the future chapters that I'm not really allowed to go into today, um, 51 says, my arm will bring justice to the nations. 
Um, and also 51.9, Isaiah actually pleads with Yahweh that his arm might bring them salvation. He says, awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. And then in 52.10, you see this idea of salvation, finally, as a result of the arm of the Lord. So in this case, the arm of the Lord would be representative of his power and his ability. And when you put this in the greater context of this being um, a trial or a campaign or an argument that says, you need to trust me and me only, this is just one example of why you should trust him because it is his arm that rules with might and it is his power that is going to be able to lead them out of it. He's exponentially more powerful and more able than anything they put their trust in, um, which is just a common theme throughout this whole thing. It's kind of repetitive at at how this all is saying the same thing, Um, but I think that I know my 16-year-old's I have to be repetitive to teach them something, and uh, I just know, even with myself, um, I'm glad that God is patient enough to be repetitive with me because I can know the answer and still choose um, not to believe it or follow it, and I need this repetition. So the next thing we're going to move on to is a metaphor. Let me write this on my board. All right, here we go. Arm of the Lord. We've got a metaphor. This is an extended metaphor. It's a little sneakier. This whole thing is set up as a trial. The argument is, again, that God is the only entity that is worthy, deserving, (coughs) capable of their trust. And the, um, the other side is the false idols and the rulers, mankind, any sort of idol. So we have a metaphor, um, a disputation series, starting in 4012 through 31. Um, So someone other than Brady, want to read that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead and read 4012 through 31. Oh, boy. King James. (laughs) Okay, yeah. go for it. Um, you said 12 through... Um, 12 through 31. Okay. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured the heavens with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as, a, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? And to what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when they are blown off, when he will blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Uh, to whom, then, will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Like, uh, lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, and the strength of his power. 
No, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my, uh, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the earth and the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thank you very much. I like that you get excited to yourself while reading. <laughs> okay, um, in this section, so um, you, this one is normally a familiar passage. People can at least point this one out, um, especially when you get to the end. And those who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. That's on like bumper stickers and posters and songs and. It's one of those. Um, but I really care more about what's before it. Um, jumping back to 40.10, I know this started with 12, but 40.10 we were just talking about with the synecdoche of his arm <coughs> ruling for him. Uh, he says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. So there's your simile again, um, this idea that he only can tend to them, can care for them. Um, you can't really read that um, without mentioning the New Testament references in the gospel, when the gospel writers make sure to include that Jesus calls himself a shepherd. Um, they say, look, this is the same guy. Jesus is a shepherd leading his flock. Yahweh is a shepherd leading his flock. Same entity. And I think that's a lot of the gospel's original messages, especially to their, their first audiences, um, was an argument that Jesus of Nazareth is actually Yahweh of the universe, of all of the scriptures that they have been taught, and they have memorized large sections of all their lives. Um, so I thought that was just a fun little side note. But, so this is... 10 and 11, um, the Lord comes with might, and his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He's going to rule. He's going to care for you. So this is his offer, and 12 through 31 is um, evidence that he can do it, but it's in the form of a disputation. Why would you doubt that I can do this? And it's a series of rhetorical questions, which uh, is one of your one of your items you were quizzed over. <coughs> Rhetorical questions. Um, this is a very, very common uh, rhetorical device in any sort of persuasive speech, in any argument. Um, for some reason, they are just very effective because it forces the reader to answer the question for themselves um, instead of just hearing the message. Um, who has measured the wa waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens of earth with a span? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Um, the obvious answer here is no one. So again, you have 12 through 14 um, attacking or debunking the idea that uh, man is more powerful than God. Um, and then you move into uh, verse 18. To whom then will you uh, liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman cast it, and a, cold, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. Um, this section is going to turn the focus and um, employ several rhetorical questions to debase the idea that you can trust an idol. Um, and it's, it's just fun to read because he starts to mock their idols. It's like, oh, well, you better pick um, some really good material. And if you're poor, I guess you can use some wood. Uh, you better find yourself a good craftsman because you're going to need to make it look good. Um, but obviously here, it says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the, the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
It's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That simile I pulled from the beginning, that people are nothing. Um, you have the idols that can't do anything because they were made, and you have man who can't do anything because they are just useless. Um, this section, again, reminds me a little bit of that section in Job, where at the end, after all of Job's question, um, God just says, okay, well, let me just ask you a few questions. Where were you when I made this whole thing? Oh, didn't think so. You weren't alive. Uh, I created you. Yes? The questions in 21, like there's four questions in a row, and then they're repeated again down at 28. And those are very much, and the answer is, like, do you not know what you've heard? <coughs> they do know. And yeah. So those questions kind of make, I mean, are almost chastising them. Like, do you not know, not heard? Has it not been told you? And the answer is yes, and they know that. So the speaker obviously knows the answer that they know as well. And so it kind of forces them to go, yeah, we... I was going to say, the parent in the room. Any parents in the room. The parental technique? Yeah. Did I not tell you three times? Oh, wait, I did. You knew better than this. You have no excuse. Yes. And he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and claim, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. You're going to come home. Mm-hmm. You're going to come home. Exile is going to end. You can all you want <coughs> in Babylon, but you're coming home. Yeah. Yeah, and in that section, um, that little verse there, we get to see the accusation that Israel is making towards God. Um, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. This idea that Yahweh has abandoned them because they are in exile, and he doesn't listen to them. Um, It's no use to trust him or to try to um, get him to move or to act on their behalf. And I can't really judge them for that because, again, that's uh, that's something that I go to whenever he does something that I don't like. And I like to throw these holy fits, and then he can kind of talk them down. Um, but the accusation here is that God has abandoned them, and he is no longer trustworthy. Um, so, in response to that, to flip over to 41.1. In response to the argument or the accusation that God does not hear them, God does not um, understand or come through for them. He invites the nations to judge who God is. So this is again in this courtroom. This is a covenantal lawsuit. And uh, 41 says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw, let us together draw near for judgment. Um, Again, this is why I teach that it's a close reading is so important because if you just kind of skim over this and you're trying to check off like on your version Bible plan that you read this section, you'll let, oh, wow, let's come to God and renew our strength and speak. That's totally not the case. This is not a positive. This is, okay, if you have something to say, then you better get ready and uh, man up and get up here. Approach me. And then together we will come to a judgment. Um, and then he goes right back into this series of rhetorical questions that just rips them to shreds. Um, this is a little ironic because in our life group we are going over. We're we're in a right now media series that's called Ultimate Authority, and it's about the sovereignty of God. And uh, Ryan jokes that I question that all the time, because I do. Um, So this was a fun passage to pair it with. But one of the passages that, um, this is a Matt Chandler series, Matt Chandler pointed out is Daniel 4, 35. You don't have to flip there, but I'll read it because I think it reads similar to these questions. Um, It says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yikes. Um, Again, that's another one of those passages that just 
just makes you feel smaller and smaller and smaller because I think all I ever do is say to him, what have you done? Um, but the reality is that people are like the grass and the grass withers and flowers fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Um, so you have this section of God again asking rhetorical questions, um, defending his ultimate authority. Thank you, Matt Chandler, for that. What I wanted to point out um, is 41.7. He is attacking, again, their idols, so it's going to run a similar structure to the last rhetorical section, but this one. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths it with a hammer, who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Keep that in mind, and then hop three verses down to where God is promising um, strength to his people. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, this one. Um, I'm going to erase synecdoche. And this. Hope you got it by then. Okay, this one is a fun one. It's called chiasmus. And um, what was your example? The JFK, um, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. So chiasmus is when you flip the structure or the grammar. Ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. It's called chiasmus because it makes an X in the structure. Ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you like chi, like the Greek letter chi. Um, I learned this in college, and so every time I walked by chi o'clock, it's like, wow, chiasmus. So you have in 41, chiasmus, in 41.7, it says, they strengthen it with nails. And then 41.10 says, I strengthen you and help you. So what is happening here in the structure of chiasmus is you have, I'm going to get this right, the worshipers are creating and lending strength to the object of their worship in the case of idolatry. Um, the worshipers create the thing and give strength to the thing that they worship. But in our case, it's the reverse effect. It is the, the object of the worship lending strength to and creating the worshipers. So it's this, like I said, a reversal of um, who has the power who gives strength. We don't, we don't give strength to our God. Our God obviously gives strength to us. And I just thought that it was interesting to see those two ideas set up right next to each other, only three verses away. Um, also, I just, I love chiasmus. Oops. Yes. Also. Yes. The, so, like, there's multiple ways to use a chiasm. The Bible typically uses it as a way of drawing emphasis to the center point. And so it's not even like there's just three verse like spacer. It's actually saying verses 8 and 9 is almost the point of the section. Um, so to ask the question, why will he strengthen you? Verse 9 says, because you're my servant. You're Jacob. I chose you. You're Abraham's offspring. He goes into all of these reasons why it's foolishness to trust in the idols. And so it's almost, it's it sets up these two poles to call attention to what's in between. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, that's kind of next on my notes. Um, 41. <laughs> no, it's okay. I just realized also that both of you are sitting next to each other, so yikes. If I get anything wrong theolo theologically or in the English world, I've got accountability right there. So in 41.8, like he was saying, um, this is kind of a key verse here to this argument or this trial scene. It says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. This is a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. This is 
calling back to their attention the fact that they had a deal and he's not abandoned his end of the deal and if they choose to keep their end of the deal then all of the blessings will follow this is why i said it was a conditional hope for the purpose of this if you choose to follow if you choose to put your trust then i will bless you and i will be with you and you'll be comforted um Yes, you knew better. You are well aware of the covenant. You know the the terms and conditions. Yes. In my class, in my English class, this functions um, as the syllabus. So if I have a late policy and my students come to me crying and they say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know that you didn't accept this four weeks late. say, actually, uh, it is in the syllabus. We talked about it. It's in writing. You signed it. We've, we've been over this. You did know better. Now you're just going to have to pay for the consequences. Um, luckily, though, those consequences in a cosmic realm uh, end, and uh, God lends mercy. Not because Israel is deserving of it, but because God is merciful. And I think that's an important thing as well, that it's not, it's not on their part that they actually paid they didn't serve their time and now it's ended and everything is just but it's that god is merciful and he's not going to let his wrath pour out forever that he will still uh, build up what they call a remnant through the servant which is what we're about to talk about um quickly actually maybe we won't because i think you're almost out of time we'll go quick um in 42 1 through 9 flip over Um, It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So the answer to the reminder of this Abrahamic covenant is in this idea of a servant. And I'm assuming that Ryan is going to be covering this in much more detail in the next classes. But this idea of the servant um, comes in the form of four different what are called servant songs. And this is just the first one, 42, 1 through 9, about this call that Israel has to be God's servant and function as the light of the world. Um, The tricky thing is with 42, 1 through 9, when you read about God's servant that he puts his spirit on and who's going to bring justice to the nations, a lot of people automatically um, put their mind to Jesus And while that is true, he is God's servant, um, it's important not to skip over the fact that Israel functions as God's servant as well. So Israel is, as a whole community, they are to be God's servant to the nations, um, to the coastlands, uh, back to the very beginning in verse 6, that his glory should be revealed throughout the earth. But within that broad community, there's going to be one specific servant who actually does the job much better than we ever could, and whose, um, whose service has more lasting effects, everlasting effects, actually. Um, yeah, more than anything we could do. Um, so, today's little section ends on 42.10 through 17, which is a call to sing to the Lord a new song. And um, this is the proper response after hearing the call that happens in 41 through 11. After you go through the process of purification, well, of judgment, which they are in, in exile, that leads to purification, that leads to salvation, that leads to God's glory, is to sing this new song to him, um, his praise from the end of the earth. And in verse 12, it says, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So, of all of this section, um, the main thread points to that end that I erased, being God's glory, that he is ultimately glorified. Um, That would be the so what that I'd be asking my students to point to. Don't just tell me what a metaphor is. Don't tell me what a simile is. Don't really care, but tell me how it contributes to the overall meaning, which in this case is... Trust God, 
not the idols, not man. And in doing so, you're going to be glorifying him. Um, so, I think I'm probably out of time, almost out of time. Yeah. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for being in English, too. Want to pray? Yes, your EOIs. You're going to take an EOI to next week. Oh. Okay. Wow. Thrown, thrown out. Sure. I'll pray. Okay. God, thank you uh, for this day, and thank you that you've given us your word to study. Thank you that you counted us significant enough um, to speak to and to interact with, even though before you we are nothing. I pray that you would remind us, maybe just me, um, that you are higher and you are more powerful um, than any of my logic or anything I would put my trust in. And I pray that you would constantly be calling us back to you, um, that you would give us the strength and the willpower, the discipline to choose you instead of the things that we put our trust in and to glorify you instead of ourselves. Um, thank you for your word. I pray that we would become close readers of it and well-informed um, analyzers of your text that they would actually sink into our hearts um, so we could pull some sort of truth about you about us, our relationship to you, and therefore our call and our purpose. Thank you for your mercy, because we don't deserve any of it. Uh, thank you that your wrath ends and you extend grace where we don't deserve it, and you extend um, love and hope and comfort when we've done nothing for it. Um, we love you and thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.